Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 124 for December 27th, 2007. Listener questions number 31. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. And by Nerds on Site, looking to grow your IT service business? Find out how Nerds on Site can help. Visit IWantToBeANerd.com. And by listeners like you. Thanks for your donations. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. The post-Christmas, pre-New Year's edition. Leo Laporte here. Steve Gibson is in Irvine. And we should just say that we are not yet eggnogged out because we're recording this before Christmas. Yes, we are. So that we wouldn't miss an episode and we wouldn't wouldn't leave our listeners hanging and and saying, wait a minute. You're amazing, Steve. And I'm in Egypt. That's the other reason. (laughs) You've made time for this, Leo. So I really appreciate that. And I know our listeners do. Oh, no. Yeah, no. That's... uh, you you have now, I believe, you will now have surpassed Twit for the number of shows, at least after this one. So, finally, damn you, uh, Steve Gibson, damn uh. you. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to do a Q and A this week. Uh, yep. Listener feedback number thirty one, and we've got twelve great questions, including the official "Duh" of the week award and the fantastic tip of the week award. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <laughs> do you have any uh, addenda anything you want to uh, handle before we get into the meat of the matter um i do i did want to say at the beginning of the show something that i mentioned at the end of our show last week and that is that i've had a number of people who have written in using the feedback form i want to remind people about that as you always do leo grc.com slash feedback to allow people to to send us their notes and thoughts uh, i get ideas for for show topics and sort of some uh an in, it's an informal steering committee uh that i i do pay attention to a number of people have said you know um the the show's called security now Let, let's have a little bit more of the now that. in that yeah, yeah. um and and they're right we were probably a little better in our first year or two about talking about things that had happened that week, uh, important things that, that came up, but I, I've gotten a little sort of out of focus on that. So my my uh, New Year's resolution for the show is that in 08 and on, we're going to, I'm going to be a little more focused on and maybe sort of add a little section at the top of each show about anything important that happened uh, in the week about insecurity news that we need to make sure our our listeners are aware of. But not this week because we're taping it ahead. Exactly. <laughs> so we don't know what's and, happened. But nothing's uh, happened. It's the week after Christmas. Nothing's. What could go wrong? And, and we did have a listener. Actually, this is the one I, I noted. Although a couple people made made a point of, of mentioning that I misstated the processor in the. We remember we were in our little nostalgic phase a couple of weeks ago, and I and I said. That the the chip in the original PC was the eight thousand eight. Was the eighty eighty eight? Exactly. Yeah. The eighty eighty eight had sort of some some sixteen bit stuff in it. It was still largely. It used a um, weird address space, as you well know. That weird oh, extended address space. As an assembly space. language, yes. As an assembly language programmer, I uh, I I found out about segment segmented address spaces, and I was really glad to go to a thirty two bit flat address model. Um, when when we finally got there, right about when that Intel. came out, I was writing uh, assembly code for the sixty eight thousand, which had a flat space. Oh, uh, a much nicer chip. It was too. a really elegant uh, extraction set. It was very easy. Then I and uh, my friend uh, Tim Pozar was writing assembly code for the. We were both learning assembly code at the same time. He was writing it for the x eighty six, the eighty eighty eight. And I looked at the, the hoops he had to jump through to do memory addressing, and I thought that isn't because you have to rotate it over, and oh, it's just crazy. They had what a twenty bit was it a twenty bit address space that they extended to make look thirty two, or was it twenty four bit? Was it twenty? No, it, 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 it was twenty bit. You had um, because in in sixteen bits you're able to access sixty four k, and that's where the six forty k 
sort of came from. What was they added four bits, and then you're so you're able to use those to to access um, the, the total address space of of the system. So right. I apologize for uh, the, Steve's quality. All of a sudden, for some reason, Adobe decided to download a 386 megabyte update to Photoshop. Stop it. Add Adobe. Okay, it's stopped now. <laughs> you'll, you'll sound better in a second. This is a problem, you know, with Skype. Skype sounds great if you have all the bandwidth dedicated to it. But as soon as, uh, as soon as, and, the compu- and computers nowadays, they're always doing something in the background. Something without asking permission. So I think you'll sound better now. Um, so it's an 8088. It's an eight yes eight zero eight eight is is the chip that was in um, that one and then an eighty eighty six oh no I'm sorry an eighty the eighty two eighty six eight oh two eight six yeah that yeah. that's what was, that was the in AT. the the PCAT right, yeah. right right so uh, correction in errata mode hey that was a long time ago <laughs> come on you can't expect us to remember all that that was yeah, well it's pretty amazing that we remember as much as we do. If 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 or when we do our our old fart show with the the old geezers, um, I'm sure there'll be all kinds of things where we're saying, "Wait a minute, we're like correcting each other and our that'll be fun." Our, our I'll, aging. I'll place. have Wikipedia open as we do it, just to, <laughs> to keep us uh, honest. I I thought you said eighty eighty eight because I wasn't listening closely enough. I mean, come on. Yeah, but it's good. No, we won't. No, we believe in getting things right. Hey, before we uh, before we go any further, I do want to mention, uh, speaking of getting things right, the great folks at Nerds on Site. We love Nerds on Site. It is Nerds on Site's growing. They need more nerds. We want more nerds to service their customers. They're looking for nerds with competencies in just about every area of technology, from PC to Mac, from Cisco to Oracle, fix-it technicians, website designers, programmers, project managers, sales trainers, security experts, antivirus gurus. Really, if you're working in technology... You, you should find out about nerds on site. Of course, they really like those nerds who can troubleshoot, tear apart, and rebuild their own systems in their spare time. That The hardcore, we love this stuff, guys. And you know what? If you're listening to this show, you are one of them. Nerds are independent contractors, so you're being in business for yourself, but not by yourself. That's what's cool about this. You can focus on your passion and not the burdens of running a business all over the world now. Canada, U.S., Mexico, England, Australia, South Africa, Bolivia. Some of the benefits, well, you get to drive that great red nerdmobile. I love that. You also can polish up your skills. They have 250 competencies, more than that, actually, in their University of Nerdology. Uh, in fact, one of the things uh, that they do now is they have, um, uh, they are an Astaro authorized solution provider, which means that you can install and set up a Astaro gateways for them. In fact, they have all the UTMs, but you can also get free Astaro certified administrator and Astaro certified engineer training. These, these are the things that make a big difference. They're really, it's really, really cool. If you want to find out more, simple enough, go to the web. I want to be a nerd.com. All one word. I want to be a nerd.com. And you can register for a nerds only meeting in your area today. Find out more about nerds on site. We don't serve as computers. We serve people with computers. See, I like that attitude. I like that point of view. And by the way, the Nerds on Site Worldwide team works together to deliver the best in tech to their small and medium enterprise clients. Don't forget enterprise, too. If you're an enterprise nerd, I want to be a nerd.com. We thank them so much for their support of Security Now. You got any great spin right? I bet you do. Spin right. Uh-huh. What would make you think that? I don't know. I just thought you might. Okay, get this one, Leo. Spinrite aids hearing. Uh, (laughs) No, come on. (laughs) Now you've gone over the top. (laughs) Spinrite helps you hear better. This one uh, we received toward the end of November from uh, a Spinrite user, Steve Nicholas, who said, I'd just like to share a Spinrite success story with you guys. I'm a freelance IT consultant, and last week I got a call from a client of mine who's an audiologist. They have a dedicated PC linked to some hearing testing and hearing aid programming equipment. Uh This particular day, they had switched on the PC and Windows loaded, gave them an error about missing DLL, and then they had no desktops or any other option but to turn the PC off. Luckily, this was a quiet day for them, uh, so to speak, the audiologist. Anyway, this was a quiet (laughs) day for them. (laughs) 
<laughs> but they had lots of hearing assessments booked in for the following day. I looked at the PC and tried to start in safe mode, but still nothing worked. I then booted from a Windows XP CD and ran check disk. Alas, check disk reported that there were bad sectors on the drive and unrecoverable yeah, errors. Yeah. I informed the client that they'd need to replace the hard drive and might possibly have to reinstall the OS and the apps from scratch. He looked even more worried and explained that he didn't have the CDs for the audiology software as it had been installed by the equipment manufacturer and was a nightmare to calibrate from a new install. I said I'd try my best and took the PC back to my workshop with the intention of cloning the partition to a new disk. But unfortunately, the cloning software said there was a fatal error reading the drive. Mm. It was not looking good for the PC or my client. I then fired up Spinrite and left it running on the PC overnight. The following morning, Spinrite had fixed the drive and, hey, presto, the PC booted up as normal. Wow. The, the BIOS smart monitor said the drive was in danger of imminent failure, so I quickly cloned it onto a new disk and had my client's PC and audio, audio meter equipment up and running by 9 a.m., and no appointments had to be canceled, oh, and the practice wow. could operate as normal, much to the relief of my client and his patients. Lifesaver. Great work, GRC. Yeah, that's a lifesaver. Wow. There you go. So, spin right does it again. <laughs> Got to keep, you, you know, we hear you, spin right. We hear you. <laughs> so, uh, let's talk a little bit. Actually, speaking of hearing you, we have listener feedback. Not that kind of feedback. Feedback from our listeners. So, let's uh, get to our first call if you Absolutely. would like. Or first email, I guess. Stephen buys in South Africa. He says, I, he, you say he scrutinizes every cookie. In the light of the recent privacy discussion, I wanted to offer the following advice. By the way, that was a great show. That was episode 121, I believe. We Is talked privacy about privacy. Dead. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I wanted to offer the following advice regarding cookie management. Perhaps my approach is slightly over the top but i found it does not impact my day-to-day -day surfing see that's my problem you turn off cookies and every everything stops working apart from disabling and managing javascript using the firefox no script plugin i've disabled all cookies in firefox and the preferences you do this by unticking the accept cookies from sites box under the privacy tab okay huh. you can then go to the exceptions button oh, on the same page and manually enable cookies by site as you need them I've explicitly enabled cookies for things like Audible where I choose to stay logged in, but most sites are blocked. So it's kind of similar to the NoScript where you, you, you opt out unless you specifically, explicitly opt in. Yeah, I liked his idea because I know that we've got listeners who, who really want control and who, are, who you know, want to go even further than somebody who, for example, wants to just block third-party cookies. Right. My, my normal practice is to allow first-party cookies, but to disable third-party cookies. Right. However, we've seen, for example, that there are still ways around that, such as we discussed in the PayPal DoubleClick episode, where if, you, if PayPal hosted a link to DoubleClick that, that bounced you back to PayPal, then you'd be doing a first-party DoubleClick cookie. Right. So, so what, what, what Stephen is talking about is, you know, it goes further, and it would even block that sort of first-party cooking, so he's, uh, or first-party cookie approach. Right. So he's disabling even first-party cookies by default, and then he makes exceptions. As you said, Leo, he's opting in to specific cookies that he wants to allow. I'll mention that IE offers the same feature. That is, you are able to say, I want to disable all cookies, and then manually allow cookies only for specific sites. So if that fits people's way of operating, I wanted to make sure that they knew that was that was a possibility. You could allow, you know, MSN and and Amazon and PayPal and you know explicitly the sites where you want to maintain an ongoing relationship with the site. You want to be be able to stay logged on or be able to browse around. You know, if, if the site is really broken as Frankly, a lot of sites will be. Then you can, but but you say, okay, I care about this site. Then then you you explicitly enable cookies 
only for that domain. And so the browser defaults to not ever sending cookies back, even when it receives them, and only does so on the sites where you permit it. So it's, you know, it, it's again, it's a, it's a, a, a more restrictive policy, but it's going to be protection against even the, the first-party referrer approach that we described in the PayPal DoubleClick episode right, not right, too long ago. Right. The problem is, of course, knowing who to trust, and, and, and especially since, I mean, you, you'd think you'd trust PayPal. Um, you know, I, I guess I trust Amazon, but now what we learn is more and more that these sites have deals with advertising companies like DoubleClick, and I don't know, can you? In fact, there was a blurb in the news uh, a couple of weeks ago, Leo, uh, that you know put on, sort of raised my hair a little bit. There's another company that is a major mail order physical world company that is talking also about combining that with, with online uh, presence. That is, they're they're explicitly saying we're going to partner with people who are. Are, are companies like PayPal, like Google perhaps, um, who, who do know your actual name and address and who have given you cookies in order to match you up, to match your, your offline. Ooh, that's really exist- scary. I know, it really is. To match your offline presence with your online Oof. presence in order to cross that boundary. And it's, I mean... It's something to be concerned about. And, of course, we've got Google purchasing DoubleClick. That's, uh, you know, one of the uh, – well, in fact, DoubleClick apparently purchased a company some years ago that talked about doing this. And the outcry that that came up ended up um, pushing them away from from that practice because people were so upset with the idea of, of, you know, not only being tracked on the Internet anonymously but making it non-anonymous. Oh, boy. Well, let's hope, you know, I mean, I think the awareness is so key and, uh, and as, cause when consumers do kick up people, you know, nobody wants to make their customers angry. So there is some hope because uh, when, when consumers kick up, they do back off, but right. we just have to stay aware of it. I think that's, that's really the key on this. Um, so good suggestion, Stephen, um, or Stefan, I should say, uh, Ryan in Indiana had an interesting suggestion for Wi-Fi security. I was listening to your podcast regarding using SSL, VPN, and SSH, one or the other, I guess, while traveling hotels and such when needing to use a non-secure network. My question is, while it's a great idea to use VPN to your home router while away, why not use VPN in your home to secure your wireless? It could be in lieu of or or in conjunction with WPA, especially if you're using uh, hardware or devices such as meeting extenders that don't support WPA. Would would that's well, but if they don't support WPA, are they going to support VPNs? Well, um, for example, um, I would. We know that that one of the shows sponsors, Astaro, offers um, oh, yeah. SSL uh, VPN, which tends to be the most compatible. Right. Uh, we right. talked about this back in our in our early VPN episodes that there were real problems with the traditional IPsec and PPTP protocols because they just weren't very flexible. Um, but it it absolutely is the case that that this is it's a workable idea. If you did not, if for whatever reason your wireless did not support WPA, yet you had a router or some device that did support a VPN, um, and you're able to connect to it from your laptop, that you know that is an absolutely uh, rigorously secure connection which is is proof against man-in-the-middle attacks of, of any sort, any kind of ARP sort of poisoning games. I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's an absolutely workable solution for, for protecting your traffic. Somebody who, were, who, who was to hack your, for example, your, your web key or even you know, leave your wireless open if you're not concerned about people connecting to your network by mistake, um, they would only see random noise packets going back and forth that would never be able to 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 get up to any mischief except they again would be able to use your connection which you know might or might not be a problem oh that's interesting so that would be a way if you wanted to open a connection up that would be a way to do that yep uh that's interesting huh jeffrey in columbia maryland has an idea about his system's hosts file in past episodes, we spoke about host files and how using it can limit your computer's exposure to some of the unwanted sites out there. Just to recap, you change your host file on your system and uh, you can block sites that way. Point their 
uh, IP address to a, a local host, for instance. So I was wondering, would entering your bank's URL and the IP it resolves to in the host file protect you from phishing attempts and our man-in-the-middle attacks? That makes sense. So you have a bankofamerica.com and you, you hardwire it to their IP address. Can you do well, that? yeah. I mean, that that is the idea. Although I wanted to, I, I wanted to sort of clarify for 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 Jeffrey and other users, you know, what the host's file does. Essentially, it's you know, we've talked often about DNS, the domain name system, and how when you put in, for example, you know, www.mybank.com, your computer goes out to the registered DNS server, typically that's offered by the ISP, it's running by the ISP, and asks that server if it happens to have a local copy of of the IP address for www.mybank.com. If not, then the um, it may resolve it for you. It'll go and find the the current IP address for that and then end up returning that result to you. The host's file is a is like a, a place your computer checks in before it makes an external query. So if you had in your host's file www.mybank.com and then the IP address for that the, the, is the IP address for that that domain, then one thing it is is faster because you're not having to go out and look it up. So there is a, there's a speed boost. However, most phishing attacks aren't trying to change the IP address associated with a domain name. They're, for example, misspelling it to, you know, mybank2.com, hoping that you're not going to notice that there's a, num- a numeral 2 after right. mybank.com. So that's not going to fix it for the... Or, Exactly. So, so it would not prevent that kind of phishing attack. Now, I'm not sure what he means by man in the middle. There are DNS man in the middle attacks. So that, for example, if someone could, could infect the DNS system, and there are various types of DNS poisoning, poisoning that have been done, then, then someone could artificially change the, the IP returned for an external query to mybank.com and then and then end up intercepting anybody who who was affected by that DNS poisoning and and route them to a, you know essentially a, a a hostile service and perform essentially a man in the middle attack that way so in that case hardwiring the IP for your bank in your host file would prevent that kind of attack the the only other problem with doing so is that DNS can be used for load balancing. Major sites, for example, uh, AOL, change the uh, the DNS. Exactly, major uh. sites like like AOL will will not have a single IP for AOL.com. They'll have a block of of maybe I mean they may have a block of of a hundred. But on any given query, you, you'll typically have like five, and they rotate. Every time the query is made, the DNS server has logic in it, which rotates that list so that there's a, 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 um, a balancing effect. Everybody who, gets, who asks for AOL.com has the IPs spread out among a number of different servers so that no one of them ends up carrying all the load. So if you were to hardwire one IP, then you would not get the benefit of that kind of load balancing. And, of course, the other problem is if the bank's IP changed, you would suddenly find that the because your host's file would not be updating itself, you would, you would think that your bank had gone offline. In fact, you'd be using the wrong IP for your bank if the DNS changed, but your host file didn't. So, I mean, it can give you a speed boost. It can prevent um, uh, a, a DNS poisoning attack from succeeding, but on balance, it's probably better to use it to block things you know are malicious. For example, we know that if you put doubleclick.net into your host file and aimed it at 127.0.0.1, which is the so-called local host IP, it will prevent your computer from ever having contact with the actual double-click domain under all circumstances. So it's probably more useful to block things you know you want to block 
rather than trying to, to hardwire IPs for things that, that, that you want to prevent DNS from causing any problems from. Good, good point. Very good point. It was, a, it, was a, it was a try. Yeah. Yeah. Anthony DeSanti in New Tripoli, Pennsylvania, likes pushing buttons. I love the podcast and many of other Leo's other podcasts, too. Thank you, Anthony. I purchased the PayPal football as soon as you guys mentioned it, and I feel much safer now that my account requires it. Although I didn't wish they didn't use the simple account number check as a fallback for when you don't have the football with you. I agree. Yep. And that really kind of obviates the whole thing. I also purchased the VeriSign VIP card when you brought it up. The card is so cool. However, I think you've discovered one big downside to it. You must use every number it generates in order or else it gets out of sync with the PayPal server, which then starts rejecting its numbers. Now, I haven't found that to be the case, but I know. Because the card is so cool, I've been showing it off to my friends, and naturally I'm pushing its button to generate a new number in order to show off the display technology. But apparently with a VIP card, you just can't do that. You can't throw away numbers as you can with a football, and it's time-based algorithm. Is this indeed the case? Um, sort of yes and sort of no. Um, I'm in the process of, of coming up to speed on the details of this. I have the documentation from VeriSign, and they've, they've followed through now and created a, um, a formal um, evaluation account, which will allow me to use these tokens in order to do validation. I'm hoping to get to that over the holidays. So probably by the time people are hearing this, I, I may have, have, have been able to cross that bridge, but I have everything I need to from them. So I'm excited to spend some time doing this. The way um, VeriSign's backends work, they're aware of people that might be pushing the button. I think that Anthony probably really likes to push the button <laughs> yeah i haven't had any trouble at all it seems to keep up fine yes so um, it's not the, doing what the football did the football generates based on a the number is based on timing right so right um in the api there is absolutely a window um in the case of the football that is based on time you have a plus and minus window so that you can decide how far into the past or into the future that is how much desynchronization between the the um the football's time based uh token and the verisign servers are allowed in the case of the, the of the of the credit card form factor, there's no backwards. There's only forwards. But so there there is a window that says how many how far into the future of codes do you want to accept? That oh, is how tolerant do you want to be of people like Anthony who are pushing his button all the time on the card <laughs> and, and and advancing the counter forward and and individual users have that is individual users of the verisign authentication system have the choice of how restrictive they want to be so i'm not sure who he's authenticating with but for example if he if he's authenticating with paypal um then it may be that paypal uh. has decided they want to be rather narrow and not allow for example more than 10 or 15 numbers ahead Although certainly, once you resync yourself with PayPal, now, how do you resync by you by should, having a correct entry? Yes, I, I believe it's two in a row. That is, you're, you 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 give them one too far in the future, and they say, "Okay, uh, we see you. Give us the next one." Uh-huh. And it, by asking for two in a row, that relocks them okay. and proves that, that that you know you have the card because you know not only this one but the immediate next one. I've if people have some people have said, "Oh, it's asked," and I've seen this happen to me. It's asked again after you enter it once. So that's what's going on. It's resyncing. Yes, Got that's it. why the double request. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess I don't push it as much as Anthony does. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have I play with it, but uh, it's well, fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, not, I don't play with it all the time. Chris in Los Gatos, California, has been studying his RSA Secure ID token. Is that the one we're talking about? Is that the same one? No, no. Now, we, we've been talking about VeriSign, and RSA is very different. They're a competitor. He says, I found an error with your comments about the RSA Secure ID. It seems like the PayPal keys that you and many people have talked about are different from the ones I use at work. I work for a large aerospace company. I do mean large. Everyone's probably heard of the company. The initials are LM. You think that might be Lockheed Martin? Lockheed Martin? Hmm. Ah. Or Leo's machinery. I don't know. <laughs> you have said that the PayPal keys have a sequential first digit 
add one to the value of the first digit for the next key number. My RSA secure ID that I use for corporate VPN does not have any sequential dis- digits, and there's no predictable pattern in any of the six digits that appear on my key. And as we know, that's a better thing. Does this mean I have more security that your, than your PayPal key since I have six digits of random numbers and yours only has five? Considering the company I work for, we have a very good reason to keep what we work on as secure as possible. Well, um, I, I wanna, I'll, I'll correct Chris a little bit. He said that there's no predictable pattern in any of the six digits that appear on the key. I would say, well, he there's no tri- – <laughs> exactly. Yeah. There's no trivially predictable right, pattern, right. but it's certainly the case that it's based on a pseudo-random sequence, which is absolutely predictable, although you need a crypto algorithm in order to figure out what they're going to be next. But he's right about his his point that, that the – the the so-called uh, you know the PayPal football uh, as we refer to it the time-based token that that those guys use does have a as we've discussed the first digit increment sequentially which is which is used as a as a shortcut allowing the server to guess within a plus or minus um, a couple minute window which key you're on. Now, as to is it more or less secure, it's like, well, okay, I suppose, and, and as, as we've discussed also, that the fact that you, you've made one digit predictable then brings the, the challenge down from one in a million to one in a hundred thousand. On the other hand, it's changing every 60, I'm sorry, every 30 seconds. So the only the only reasonable attack would be some sort of brute force attack, but the target of the brute force attack changes every 30 seconds. And you're always authenticating about a back-end server. So the back-end server can say, wait a minute, this guy has just missed five attempts. Uh, we're going to lock him out, or we're going to slow down our responses, or we're going to wait on purpose for another 30-second window to pass by in order to prevent that kind of attack from happening. So I guess what I'm saying is that, yes, technically, the the PayPal football approach that uh, has one predictable digit is one-tenth as secure. However, it's already way more secure than it needs to be because it's being time-based and the target of any attack is changing every 30 seconds. Yeah. But I can also see, I mean, so why they do that so that, why, why, we, we talked about this in detail. I just forgot. Why do they put that sequential number in there? Makes it easier um, for it to sync up. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. They, they have to do less work in order to check against codes. And in a, in a, in a heavy use environment, it, it could, you know, it's going to save it's servers, mean- save server work. Exactly. Okay. And so in Lockheed Martin, it's much far fewer users. And so they can. Afford the server time. Right. Bob Thibodeau from Coral Springs, Florida is worried because he's got WEP and WPA at the same time. During episode 118, you guys discussed using a router that had both WEP and WPA available at the same time so that WEP-enabled devices can attach to the network. You seem to indicate that this was a safe way to accommodate WEP-only devices. Actually, I don't know if that's what we said. I can see that using WPA on my computers and WEP for my replay TV will keep my computer traffic from being sniffed. But doesn't the web hole in my network allow someone to get on my network and see any shares? And of course, they would have access to my internet connection if they were able to get into some illicit trafficking. Wouldn't I be liable? So I think you said that. I think yes. that's exactly was your point. Yes. Um, th- w- a- a- as we've discussed, due to the problem with ARP poisoning that we discussed um, some time ago, which allows somebody bad who had access to your network to to insert themselves, essentially create a man in the middle and be able to filter any traffic coming and going from your, your, your internet gateway, mm. which is absolutely possible. Um, that means that, that any access to your packet traffic is a problem. The, the only safe way that I can see to solve the problem is to have three routers. You would have your main router which is your internet connection, then you would have a router running WEP and a router running WPA, both connected to that to, to that first router. So, so you essentially have a Y and two routers run, running different Wi-Fi. 
Um, the reason this works is that is that you still have the potential for an ARP poisoning problem, except that ARP will not cross a router. ARP is only used within a local Ethernet. So you end up with essentially three Ethernets. You've got an Ethernet on the inside of your WPA router, an Ethernet on the inside of your WEP router, and then you've got a little tiny Ethernet that's linking those three routers. Well, that's that ends up being sacred. That little that little um, three router uh, Ethernet, because there's no way for anybody, even who breaks your web security, to to mess around with with, with that the, the the little network that links the routers. So essentially, the routers provide isolation. But if you allowed web access to, for example, your your main core router, the, the the router on the outside, then it would be able, if that were hacked, to to gain access to all your network traffic. So there's no way to do it that I've been able to think of with two routers. You would need three. But if you if you had three routers, you you would be able to use web services on one, WPA services on the other, and there's no way that even somebody with access to the web router would be able to gain access to any of your WPA traffic. Okay. So it is, so it's somewhat more secure. You, you, at least they can't sniff you. Yeah, well, they can't sniff you now. On the other hand, you, you also have complete isolation between those two networks. There, right. there would also be... There would be no way for file sharing to work across them, oh. so they would be completely isolated segments. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah, Ken Keating in North Carolina is taking no chances. Having become even more aware of cookies thanks to your recent episodes of Security Now, I noticed that VeriSign's OpenID tool, when using Seatbelt in Firefox, creates a cookie even when you don't log in. Wow, that's interesting. I have now disabled Seatbelt until I could figure out. What state it thinks it deserves to save about me when I haven't even logged in to OpenID? Yeah, what's happening there is that Firefox running as a plugin has, you know, web browser level capabilities. So it's autonomously able to 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 create a relationship with VeriSign's OpenID backend just to sort of be there and be present even if you're not logged in. I, I I've spoken to the guys at Verisign. I've had a number of phone conversations with them. The the techie guys in the back room and the the, the more marketing oriented people up front. Um, I, I just know they're on our side, and there's just no way that 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 they're doing anything wrong with Seatbelt and Firefox. They really, I mean, they're 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 pro user. They're pro security. They recognize that Seatbelt with Firefox. Um, really provides additional security for people who want to use OpenID. So I think the fact that it is it is creating a cookie is a completely benign side effect of the fact that that it's a client of the browser running as a plugin in the browser, and that that you know it creating a cookie is just the fact that that the the VeriSign server is sending cookies back with with the the um, response traffic from seatbelt and the browser is just saying, okay, I'm going to store this cookie. It, it, it makes the point that, uh, yeah, we may not like cookies, but there's a lot of functionality they provide that's, that's kind of needed. I mean, it's yes. how you save state. Exactly. It's certainly the case. And we've talked about this extensively that cookies can be abused, but boy, are they handy. Yeah. <laughs> if cookies did not exist, we would have had to invent them. Mark at Fort Collins, Colorado, wants his data really gone. I was using D-Band, says Mark. Derek's boot and nuke. That's, that's a program I recommend all the time. Yep. D-Band.sourceforge.net. On a hard drive to wipe the drive before formatting and use it as a boot drive. And I was puzzled with the options given to me by the program. I've heard that writing zeros to a drive or zero filling it does not necessarily mean that the drive data is gone. In fact... It needs to be zero filled several times to ensure the information is truly gone. But why? 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 Why are three to five passes more effective than one pass when it comes to ones and zeros on a hard drive platter? If a drive is zero filled even just once, come on, how can information still be retrieved? But doing it three to five times makes it more unrecoverable? What's going on, Steve? 
what's happening is that that the 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 magnetic impression that the hard drive's head makes on the on the the ferrous surface of the disk is an additive process so so if you write a for example zeros on the drive what you're actually doing is putting down a pattern of 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 flux reversals um, in the <laughs> in the magnetic surface of the platter okay but and 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 you're writing them strongly so that for example when you come back around and read them they're what you're going to read but you you're essentially you're you're in 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 putting down flux reversals you are overriding the the pattern of flux reversals that was there before but you're you're doing so in a in a in an additive way that is to say that if you were somebody doing forensic recovery who didn't want to read what was last written on the drive but instead what was written before what was last written it would be possible to subtract out that that last written major footprint on the drive and figure out what had been there before really? there is there is vestigial magnetism that is a vestigial pattern underneath what has most recently been written um the now, drive it's from a practical the, point of view how hard is that to read oh it's it's tough i mean you have to be you know nsa sort of guys in you know in in serious data recovery <laughs> national security sort of mode but it's been shown that that data can be recovered right and that's what derek's new boot and nuke is all about is that that it is it is, and it's actually Derek's boot nuke is going a little overboard because current technology has evolved so far that that even when you're writing zeros on a hard drive, there's all kinds of things that make the actual pattern non-predictable, and it's necessary that 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 you 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 have a a a predictability to to understand how the flux reversals map back into the data um, what drives are doing now that uh, drives go through like four different levels of 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 conversion to go from user data to to final flux reversal timing in order to do all kinds of work in order to allow them to get the density up to where they are where it is today so back in the old mfm and rll days where we had you know 20 megabytes and 30 megabytes this sort of data recovery was more practical. I would argue that, you know, probably writing zeros is just fine. But if you've got time and you really want the data gone, then writing more than once is a useful thing to do. Simpson Garfinkel, who uh, was an MIT grad student who did a study of drives, he did an interesting thing. He, uh, he bought a variety of used drives on eBay in a variety of places, got them from recycling centers and studied them. Some huge percentage, it was like 80% still had all the data on there, and he got credit card numbers and all sorts of stuff. But I asked him uh, when we were talking about this, was a couple of years ago, um, if it was necessary to write over and over and over. He said, you know, no. He said, yep. <laughs> overwrite it once is fine, yep. unless they've got some, you know, pretty, ha nobody's going to find it. And, I, you know, even the NSA, I wonder. But I guess if you're running from the, if you're running from the federal government, okay. And it is the well, Department of Defense. I mean, this is a Defar Department of Defense spec. This writing and uh, erasing, writing and erasing. Right. One of the things you you actually it's a, it's a, an interesting little tidbit. If you were to write zeros to your drive, then if you were a Spinrite owner and ran Spinrite on it, Spinrite um, reads and inverts the data, and then rewrites it, reads it, reinverts it, and rewrites it. And remember, it flips all the zeros to ones and ones to zeros and back again. And so it has the effect of pushing that history of what was on the drive back into the past further. So it's a, it's sort of a simple way of you, you you need a zero at first. Otherwise, obviously, you're going to end up with the same thing. But if you zeroed at first, then ran spin right on it, it would have the effect of doing that multi-pass, you know, really push the data gone, gone, gone. Hmm. Hmm. So... There you go. There you go. 
Matt in Ohio needs heavyweight encryption without any fluff. Steve, he says, I'm in need of securing encrypting files at work on a, on a shared network drive. I cannot install anything on the computers I frequent or the server. This is pretty common yep. uh, in business. The department I'm in shares a single logon on several department machines. At most, I could use a thumb drive. I would save everything to that except that, one, I need a backup. Servers are backed up daily. And two, there's too much to save on a thumb drive. Okay, well, I guess never mind. Is there something I can use where the software is loaded on the thumb drive and is used as the key to unlock files? In other words, he wants to encrypt on the hard drive, but using software running on the thumb drive. Exactly. Um, It turns out that most of the encryption tools around offer the benefit or the feature of, of integrating with the Windows Explorer context menus, meaning that they need to be installed. They're making changes to the registry. You know, they're not just a simple little lightweight standalone tool. Hmm. However, there is a really nice little lightweight standalone tool that I wanted to tell Matt about and tell all of our listeners about. I don't know what the name of this thing comes from, but it's called O-M-Z-I-F-F. OMZIF, O-M-Z-I-F-F. Well, you just at least put, you can Google it. <laughs> exactly. If you put OMZIF into Google, O-M-Z-I-F-F, it'll find it for you. Um, I've checked it out relatively thoroughly. Um, it's not very big. It's about 400K, so it'll fit easily on the smallest of thumb drives, and it runs perfectly from a thumb drive. Uh, it uses state-of-the-art encryption, a whole bunch of different Crypto algorithms are there. My favorite, Rindal, is among them. And you're able to give it a password, and it will encrypt a drive. So, I mean, cool. it just does. It's a very, very clean, oh, simple, lightweight, standalone encryption system. And, for example, if you just have one file that you are sensitive about and you want to encrypt, uh, this is a perfect little tool for doing it. It just zips through it and encrypts it. And then you um, you you reverse the process and it'll decrypt it. Thank you for asking uh, that question, Matt. That's really cool. Omzif. Omzif. So TrueCrypt is too heavy. It has to modify stuff to do that. Oh, boy. Yeah, it's serious. I mean, now you could install that on your thumb drive. That's what I thought. That wasn't what Matt was wanting to do. He was wanting essentially to encrypt a file and then store the encrypted file on his corporate server and then take advantage of the fact that they're going to be backed up. The servers are going to be backing up an opaque blob that they're no longer able to read, and nobody in his company is going to be able to read it. So, it. I mean, for, it. for anybody, it allows you to just do a simple standalone encryption of a file and then do anything with it you want to safely. It turns the file into, as we know, absolutely random noise, and the only way to get it back is by decrypting it with the same key. Very nifty. Security Now listener Tom in Buffalo, New York, brings us this week's protecting users from themselves, even if they don't want it note. And boy, uh, <laughs> I, I agree with you, Tom, on this one. He's talking about Western Digital's new Anywhere Access. This is a, it's only on their terabyte network attached storage drive they're doing this so far. And one hopes if, if everybody kicks up enough dust, they'll drop the whole idea entirely. But Oh. This is some software that they've put on their network-attached storage drive, their terabyte drive, their MyBook, um, that prohibits what? Well, it, yes, Corey Doctorow d- uh, made a posting in Boing Boing that, that Tom referred me to, and I did a little research to find out what was going on. Get a load of this, Leo. They refuse, by file name extension, to allow certain files to be made available um, on this this hard drive that they're saying, you know, they're, they're, it's like a server th- that allows people to access it from anywhere, except if the file has an AAC or an AIF or an AVI or a CDA or a DVI or a, I mean, or an MP3. You can't store MP3 files on your own hardware. This what? thing says no. You can store it. You can't share it, I think. Is exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It, yeah. it, it will not allow you to access those. And, and I, I love it because... In, yeah, which means in, why store it? Because you can't access it. So. Yes, exactly. On, in, in, in their own, in their own uh, uh, online facility, they ask the question of themselves, what files cannot be shared by WD Anywhere Access? Answer, due to the, get this, due to the 
unverifiable media license authentication, Jerks. the following file oh, types cannot angry. be shared by different users using WD Anywhere Access. Why would they so do they're, this? this so, so they're they're saying because these files, you know, tend to be of interest. We're, we can't be to, sure you're not stealing, so we're not uh, going to let you do it. Yeah. And who would buy this? The problem is that a lot of people buy it because it's not obvious that it's doing that till you yep. get it home. Yep. So I wanted to make sure. I, I love Tom's question. I wanted to make sure that all of our listeners <sighs> knew that uh, this this was the case with WD Anywhere Access, that they were proactively, preemptively, and without, without anyone knowing it, uh, saying, no, we're not going to allow you to share these types of files by file extension. I mean, which is dumb because all you have to do is change MP3 to MPE or something. Oh, whoops, sorry. Nope. That one is an MPEG video format. You can't use MPE either or MPEG or MPG. <laughs> or just to, T, to, to TMP. Oh, no, you can't or, do TMP files either. Uh, well, as a matter uh, of fact, don't buy this stupid drive. Oh, this makes me mad. You know, it's not too late to be the, the to have them win the Dumb Move of the Year award. It comes towards the end of the year, but I think this is easily the dumbest thing I've heard all year. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. Just bad for business. Um, you know, and uh, boy, I feel sorry for anybody who's bought this thing. Oh, we will put a link to the Boing Boing article so you can you can read this. And so far, it's as as far as I could tell, it's it's only on one particular model. Of the MyBook, I bought a MyBook. I like the MyBook. I've been recommending the MyBook. This is the those big Western Digital uh, drives, but these new terabyte network connected hard drives, I'm never gonna. Uh, and I have to say, yeah, I don't think I'll buy any more Western Digital products. Nope, no, nope, don't think so. Why take a chance? Joseph Ender in Newheim, Switzerland, is going to win the Fantastic Tip of the Week award. But first, this word. <laughs> I'm so mean. <laughs> I do want to mention Astaro, those good folks at Astaro. They are so great. They, they've supported us now for well over a year. Um, they're, and it's a great match for us because they make the Astaro uh, security gateway system, the wonderful Astaro security gateway that so many of us uh, now use. I use one. I use a 120. They're great for uh, business. Home users can use them for free. I'll tell you how to do that in a second. Uh, but let me tell you what it is first. It's a it's a UTM. Uh, that's what the I guess the industry term is is it. But it's the only UTM appliance with with so many great things in it. I mean, for instance, it's the only one with SSL VPN built in through IPsec L2TP over IPsec and PPTP tunneling with SSL. Um, but that's just one of many things. Of course, it is a, I, I have to say, it is a firewall. It is an intrusion detection device. But it also uh, does all sorts of filtering, content filtering for the web. It's got three kinds of antivirus, antivirus for the web and two kinds of antivirus for spam. I mean, for email, you know, for, 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 for viruses sent over email. It does have anti-spam. So it's a very, very good spam filter. Anti, which, by the way, is updated all the time, as is the antivirus. Uh, through the Astaro up-to-date system. You get anti-phishing protection. You get transparent encryption over SMIME and OpenPGP. See, again, you know, I really love how they use these open standards. Uh, it, it is it is the best of breed in both open source and commercial software, all in one unit. Easy to use, very powerful, and it scales as your enterprise grows. Their unique brand of active-active clustering allows as many as 10 Astaro security gateways to be... Uh, uh, low distributed over your network, which is fantastic. That's a patent pending technology. Uh, just there's so many good reasons to try Astaro in your business. Free demo units at 877, the number four Astaro, 877-427-8276. They're working this week. You can call them. 877, the number four Astaro. And as I said, if you're a non-commercial user, download Astaro from astaro.com slash security now. It's even uh, one of the very popular VMware appliances. Makes it very easy to install. Put it on a beige box and boom, you've got all this. And and now they've expanded their license. Their V7 license means you get, as a non-commercial user, you also get the Astaro up-to-date subscriptions, the anti-spam, the antivirus, the updates and all of that stuff. Free. Great company. They're really spreading it, uh, uh, security around the world, doing it right. A-S-T-A-R-O dot com or call 877, the number four, A-S-T-A-R-O. Happy holidays. 
And here's to security in 2008 from Astaro. Thank you so much for your support, Astaro, of Security Now. Are you ready, Steve Gibson, for the Fantastic Tip of the Week Award? <laughs> uh, Joseph Ender from no- Newheim, Switzerland writes, In episode 120, Brian Dewey asked for a possibility to download all the patches and fixes for Windows XT. C Prime T, a great German magazine, created an offline update script for many MS systems. Oh, that's neat. And Leo, you'll find it at Heise Security. That's H-E-I-S-E-Security.co.uk.co.uk. Yes. Um, people can just Google offline hyphen update um, in order to find it quickly. This thing is so cool. When I, when I learned about this from uh, Joseph, I grabbed a copy downloaded it uh you just it, it's a zip that you st- you expand to a little directory um basically it's an exe it's got a beautiful ui you say i want to build an iso cd of all the updates from like from the beginning of windows xp and this thing uses microsoft's own tools in order to access Microsoft's site, it downloads all the security patches, it downloaded Service Pack 2 and everything since, and ended up building a single 680 meg ISO, which you, which you can then burn to a CD, and you've got a single disk that brings any newly installed, freshly installed Windows XP right up to speed or Windows 2000, or Office 2000, 2003, Office XP. I mean, it's completely multilingual. I mean, it is really cool. Um, a number of people responded to, um, as Joseph did, to uh, to Brian Dewey's question, because I, I had remembered that there was some way, somewhere on Microsoft where you get a list of these things. A number of people talked about something called Ryan VM, I think it was, but then bemoaned the fact that it hadn't been updated since June, which, of course, is like, well, okay, you're, you're a lot further along than you were with just Service Pack 2, but so maybe you only had to install, you know, 50 patches instead of 95. But, but this thing, because it uses the real-time data directly from Microsoft's Windows Update site, it knows how to parse all of the metadata, it downloaded all the patches merged them all together and built one single ISO image. It's just, it's extremely cool. Yeah. So I guess, you know, I had mentioned a system that worked in XP and uh, within Windows Update of going to the network update, networked updates and uh, seeing the list there. But this is, this makes it so much simpler. Well, yes, and if you're someone who's installing XP, I mean, you know, the the, the real question was, and you do may I have remember, to reboot, reboot, reboot? How long is this going to take? Well, I'm do it over and over. And, and and as I remember Brian's question, he did not want to be on the net, and so my response was, well, now that you know, as long as you've got Service Pack two, if you've got Windows XP with Service Pack two, you've got the firewall turned on by default. Even if you didn't have Service Pack two, you could make sure your your Windows firewall was on, and you're probably safe. But the beauty of this is this is an offline update. So you install Windows XP, you then use this CD, and it will bring you absolutely current with never going on the Internet. And, and, and this site is very nice, too, because it demonstrates, you know, the, the, the Microsoft Baseline Security Advisor, the, uh, that BSA tool that's able to analyze the state of your machine. It shows a before and after where just app, just by applying the, the CD that this system builds, the baseline security advisor is completely satisfied. It says, okay, you are absolutely current. So this thing does it with no network connection. So it, but it, but well, it has to get a network connection initially to download everything, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah you, so, so exactly. You, so you would have a machine on the net that you would use to build this ISO, but then it builds one. I mean, this is what I'm doing from now on, Leo. I just did a Windows install the other day, and it's like, oh, here we go. You know, you know, reboot, 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 download, 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 blah, blah, blah. Now I've got this disk. It's what I will do after I install Windows XP before I go any further. And so, so, so even if you didn't do, if you didn't build one, one, one of these um Immediately until Service Pack three comes out for Windows XP, which you know we know is in beta somewhere. Until that comes out, 
um, this brings you like up to now, and then you'd only have to do you know whatever patches had come out in the second Tuesday of the month cycles right. since then. So I mean, it just brings you much closer. Really cool. Uh, again, that's uh, just Google online, uh, or I'm sorry, offline dash update, and it is the first uh, item that shows up there. But it's from Heise H E I S E dash Security dot D E, or and then click on the English flag to get to the UK site. And Karsten uh, Violka and Torsten Vitrock were the two who uh, worked on this. Really, that's a neat idea. That's a way to do it. And I got to tell you, I mean, the execution. I, I'm. I just think they it, did such a nice job. Is it batch files? How are they doing it? No. It. it, it well, it's an exe and then a bunch of command scripts, and all of it's there. You can browse it. You can. I mean, I was thinking, hey, how did they make this ISO? Because I mean, there it is. There's an ISO you can burn to CD. Um, and they just they did the whole job. That's it's so trivial to use. It, it's just fantastic. And you picked a version. It actually works for Windows 2000 XP and Server 2003. Yeah. So uh, you can pick your version. And every language you ever heard of. Yeah. Really neat. Really neat. Well, oh, and you. all the and all the office stuff also. <clears throat> oh, really? Oh, great. So if anybody's got to build Windows systems, XP systems or 2000 systems, this is a must. Yep. That's a must. Thank you, Joseph. Really good recommendation. And finally, the Tim Houlihan from Akron, Ohio, Duh Award of the Week. <laughs> <laughs> I, I read this and it's like oh duh duh several weeks ago you guys discussed a listener's log on encryption scheme and discussing the javascript hashing encryption that this listener asked about i believe steve said it was sufficient except that the session cookie could later be sniffed maybe i'm missing something about the system but i think the system is still susceptible to sniffing problems during the log on process my understanding is that a form provides a user and password field, and as the form's data is being submitted, some JavaScript does an elaborate process of three hashing systems with some salting values thrown in. This is described as a one-way process. You'd be correct to say that it would be tough, read impossible, to guess the password if you sniffed those values. However, I don't need the password. If the process is one way, then the server has the hash version stored, and that's what's authenticated. For instance, user Bob logs in with a password spot. The resulting hashed password is, I don't know, X12345. If I sniff and see a form a post with fields, user Bob, and pass X12345, I can build a simple HTML form that posts those values to the same URL. I'd be authenticated and redirected to the same page as a valid user. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> you remember we were talking about um, that guy. Uh, uh, yeah, that uh, crazy scheme. Well, yeah, well, he took the password and he ran it through an MD5 and then he added some other stuff, some random stuff. Or I, I, at some point, he got some gobbledygook from, from GRC's passwords page. He mixed that in. Then he did an SHA1 hash. And I mean, he went up, you know, I mean, really just just hashed it, it to, to pieces um, and ended up with this, no doubt, you know, bizarre output from either M, you know, the MD5 hash or the SHA1. And we were all like, kind of, you know, our eyes were crossed. It's like, oh, yeah. my goodness, oh. you know, you're never going to figure out what that was. But he did it because he didn't want to use SSL. And so we ended up saying, yeah, well, that's really not a replacement for SSL. Well, the beauty of what Tim points out is that if he's not encrypting the submission, then the result of all that even though it is so distantly related from his from his original password that you could never get back to the password you don't from need that because it's sent in the it's, clear exactly so <laughs> you you sniff that and it's like okay i don't know what the password was and i don't Who i cares? don't care <laughs> i don't need it <laughs> duh uh, whoops <laughs> anyway so tim you're absolutely right you didn't miss anything i should have uh picked up on that and mentioned it myself because it's the obvious weakness. Um, sure, you could catch the cookies going back and forth, but there's no need to do that. You could just, if you did catch the original submission, uh, you could certainly log on in the same fashion anytime you want it. Ah, there you go. Just that simple. And that's why you need many eyes looking at security because nobody is perfect all the time. And that concludes our 12 fascinating questions from 12 brilliant listeners if you'd like to submit a question for our next listener questions episode you can go to security now uh the security now website which is grc.com slash feedback right yep that'll give you a form 
And I, again, I want to encourage people to please uh, give me ideas for shows they want to see uh, or hear, <laughs> um, uh, uh, ideas uh, for questions uh, for our Q and A episodes, and just any, in just in general, any sort of feedback. I I get way more than I'm able to read. But I, I absolutely do read them. I respond when I can, and they do form the basis for our, um, our even episode Q&As. Uh, so keep those questions and feedback coming. Keep those cards and letters coming in, boys and girls. Uh, we, we, we really appreciate uh, your listening to the show, everybody. And we do remind you that you can get 16 kilobit versions for the bandwidth impaired at GRC.com, along with Elaine's great transcriptions. Show notes and more, grc.com slash security now. And while you're there, make sure you check out SpinRight, everybody's favorite disk recovery and utility, uh, disk recovery and maintenance utility. Really great program. Uh, also, Steve's freebies like Shields Up and uh, the perfect paper passwords and all that great stuff. The forums are there, too. It's really a good site, grc.com. Uh, and I understand they, uh, Scott, it's, uh, Scott Jordan and Scott Evas tells me they're going to extend the coupon code till the end of the year. So you have a couple more days if you want to get some great deals on Scott Evest. Maybe you were waiting for, you know, something under the tree and it didn't come. ScottEvest.com. Use my name, Leo, as you check out as the coupon code that'll knock 20% right off the top of the price. So, and there's still lots of good stuff. In fact, they have some clearance deals and so forth. Everything on the site, 20% off when you use my name, Leo, as the uh, coupon code. Steve, uh, it's been a great year. It's been a fantastic year. I wanted to thank our listeners for all the help and support that they have provided to us both this year. And uh, we're plowing into 2008. I'm going to uh, work to honor my, um, as I've mentioned in the last couple of weeks, my New Year's resolution is to add a little more of, of really current information about what happened during the week to as a, as a regular section uh, in the podcast moving forward. So, uh, and again, we won't be able to do that next week because we're recording that one tomorrow. Oh boy. Uh, many weeks in advance, but starting with the second one of, of 2008, that'll, that content will be there. We're busy, <laughs> busy, busy, busy. Well, Steve, have a great uh, new year's and, uh, we'll, we'll see you in the new year. This will be our, what, entering our third year of security now. It was our fourth year of security now, now. Yeah, we're in our third, so, so we're at about three wow. and a half, I guess, at this point. Unbelievable. So. Wow, that's great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for a great uh, a great show and a lot of great information. I feel like I'm a lot smarter about security and privacy and all those concerns since we started doing it, so I really appreciate it. Happy New Year, buddy, and we'll see you in 2008. Talk to you soon, my friend. Security now.